You are listening to Dermcast.tv, the official online media resource for the Society of Dermatology PAs. This is my third year being the medical director of the summer meeting. I hope you've noticed the last three years have been organized. I hope they were informational as well as enjoyable. And it's been a real pleasure working with Eileen on the CME committee. It is not easy to plan a meeting this big, and I've done my best on your behalf. And I hope this isn't goodbye. I hope I'll be invited to come back and speak from time to time, uh, because you guys are the most open to adopting new technologies and new drugs. And I think you push your collaborating doctors sometimes into the 21st century. So thank you very much for having me as the medical director. The past three years, I've had a wonderful time doing this, and I'm leaving you in very, very capable hands. So I'm going to just say one more thing, and I'm going to start on my talk. Um, There's been some acrimony between my national organization and this organization. As many of you know, I am the current, the sitting vice president of the American Academy of Dermatology, and I am dedicated for the rest of my term, as is the president of the AAD, to knocking down the walls, the barriers, mending fences, building bridges, because we're all in this together, aren't we? I am sick and tired of acrimony, mostly from our side, and it's going to stop. So anyhow, with that in mind, I'm going to talk about what's new in literature. This is a fun talk to do because I get to talk about some things you might have read and reinforce them, and maybe a few things from obscure journals that no one but me reads at 2 o'clock in the morning. So this is really a timely topic, this particular one, right? The the Congress, God only knows if anything will work, but they were busy passing a whole package of laws to try and combat this horrible scourge of the opioid epidemic. And the question is, do we, in dermatology, do we contribute to this? Do we need to look in the mirror and do something differently? And I'm glad to show you this article because it says not really. A study in the U.S. based upon Medicare data, now that's a little tiny bit narrow, but still, 12,500 plus dermatology practices and just a little under half never prescribed a single opioid in the course of a year, not one. A little under a half gave one to 10 prescriptions per year And then there were some that did a bunch of prescriptions, but those were generally a surgery-only practice. But look at the bottom bullet point. That's the really important one. In dermatology, it turns out that when patients are given an opioid, they don't get refills. They get one prescription with, on average, a supply for 4.4 days, not weeks, not months. So I'm happy about this because we seem to be not contributing to the horrible scourge of opioid dependence that we have now in the United States. Look at the map 
the mat that's sitting right in front of you from the folks at Jubilee, you'll notice they have an app that you can download. Well, welcome to the new world of the practice of medicine. So this is a great article. It goes right along with their wanting to use an app to remind their patients about dosing something that they have to do every single day. This was a Danish study. Their psoriasis patients receiving a combination topical. Half of them got a smartphone app and half of them didn't. And the smartphone app gave them a daily reminder and told them how many times they'd applied this, when was their next visit to their dermatology provider, and stuff like that. And the other half got absolutely nothing. There's really two messages here. The first message is those who got the app were about 65% adherent. Adherence being defined as at least 80% of days. They were supposed to do this every single day. So at least 80% of the days they were supposed to do it, they actually did it. And that was measured because there was a little smart chip, unbeknownst to them, in the cap. So if you don't take the cap off and apply the cream, not taking the cap, you didn't use it. So it could actually be measured. So those who got the app, 65% were adherent. Those who didn't get the app, only 38% were adherent. So an app, the brave new world of electronic communications, an app actually does help increase adherence to a frequent, recurring, or complex schedule of use of medication. So that's true. But look at the other side of the coin. Damn, 65% at the most were adherent, and adherence wasn't even every day. Adherence was eight out of 10 days. And those who didn't get the app, less than 40% actually did what their derm provider asked them to do. OMG, what does that tell us? It tells us, I think something like an app, like you have on the mat in front of you from one of the sponsors, is a good thing. It'll increase the likelihood that people will actually do what you tell them to do, but also be very cautious and don't think that your patients are always doing what you told them to do, because a lot of them don't do it. Okay, few other things. So this is from complementary therapies in medicine. And what they did here is they had awake craniotomy patients. So they opened their skull, and they needed them to be awake because they would stimulate something and say, does this do this? Do you feel this? Do you do that? So these folks are awake during a craniotomy. And they were given their choice of soothing music. They could do nature sounds like falling rain, piano, harp, orchestra, jazz. And while they were laying there having their brains operated on, listening to music, they had an entire workup for anxiety. So their heart rate, their blood pressure was measured, their respiratory rate, and they actually were given sort of a test, you know, whether to find out whether they were anxious or not. And it turns out the anxious patients who were undergoing this major brain surgery, may they actually benefited from the music. And so You could stretch a little bit. Obviously, we don't do craniotomies in our office. But don't you have patients 
who are anxious when, if you do sclerotherapy, they're having that done. Or if they're undergoing a laser procedure, it's kind of cowing for them to see all this technology in the room. Or maybe while you're doing just cold scalpel surgery. So music may help soothe the savage beast. In this case, you're really reducing anxiety. In every of my rooms, I actually have a player, CD player that's on the wall. I don't do it for every patient, but for patients, I'm going to do something as little as a biopsy to as much as surgery or sclerotherapy or laser treatments or excisions. I give them their choice of music. I cringe, honestly, even though I'm from Texas. I cringe when they do, they want country western music. It's not my thing. I would prefer listening to rain myself, and that's one of the options. Uh, but I do have that, and people do like it. And I think this is an important validation of that concept. The only problem is, here was an article a couple of years ago, that first article I showed you was brand new, this one from dermatology literature, and it turns out the music didn't help the patient, but it helped the surgeon. Okay, if you're more relaxed, then the patient kind of reads that as a vibe, and maybe that will relax them. I think it's a cool idea, and I practice it myself. Okay, what's more important? Your patient's going out in the sun. It's summer now. This is very timely. Is it more important that they stay in the shade, like using an umbrella, or is it more important that they use a sunscreen sunblock with a high SPF factor? This is the first time this has ever been done. Side-by-side -side comparison, real-time with real pale patients. They sat out in the sun for three and a half hours, some of them were under an umbrella with no sunscreen, and some of them had no umbrella, but they had an SPF 100 sunscreen. Who do you think won? Well, if you look for areas of redness after their three and a half hours out in the sun, it turns out those who had just the umbrella and no sunscreen, almost 80%, 78% of them had some erythema that was tender, and of those who used the sunscreen with no umbrella, three and a half hours, which is a goodly long time, only 25% had some areas of tender erythema. Nothing's 100% though, right? So both are important, but shade alone is clearly insufficient to provide adequate sun protection. Now, here's a dermatologist on Maui, and this is what I do. There's my umbrella, there's my wide brim hat. That C is for Chicago Cubs, because I grew up in Chicago, and once a Cub fan, always a Cub fan. A T-shirt, which I keep on the whole time I'm out, and even when I go in the water, I have a T-shirt on, and I'm wearing SPF 85 sunscreen. Now, what you don't see here is I put a towel or two or three or four on top of the umbrella and sand. So I basically make my umbrella into a little cave. You know, my wife says, why do you bother even coming out here <laughs> with all the stuff? Because I don't want to get burned. I'm fair-skinned and I burn easily. So the point, though, being 
Shade alone is not sufficient. It's good, it helps, but it's not sufficient. And we know from recent really well-done studies where there were little mannequins with UV detectors pinned on them that the incident sun coming directly from the sky with the UV rays is only part of how you get UV exposure. Some of it is reflected off sand or water, and a lot of it actually comes in laterally. So if you think of an umbrella over your head, stuff can still come in from the sides, and that's why it's not that effective. Okay, how about this one? The role of therapy in impairing the quality of life. Impairing. What do all the studies you read usually say? We did thus and so, and the quality of life got better. Well, this was a very controversial, it's a provocative, thought-provoking article from Europe, multiple countries, 13 in fact, almost 4,000 patients, and they picked patients who had a high degree of likelihood that they were going to get some therapy, psoriasis, hydradenitis, atopy, and hives. And for most, the treatment improved their dermatology-specific quality of life index, but for some the therapy actually lowered their quality of life as measured by this standard and validated way of looking at quality of life in a derm patient, particularly for bullous diseases, vasculitis, and leg ulcers. A lot of that has to do with immunosuppressive therapy and the potential risks and probable risks of having something as a complication or nausea or other things related to immunosuppressive therapy. What's the message, though, here? I think the message is this. We always think that when we pick a therapeutic intervention for XYZ disease, that we're doing the patients some good in the world, right? We're going to make them feel better, look better, whatever. But always just keep in the back of your mind, I never thought about it this way. So I really like this article just to let me take stock. If the patient's saying, you know, that medicine's really, I can't sleep. Uh, it's really uncomfortable because I'm nauseated. Uh, whatever, whatever. If the patient gives you a hint that what you're doing, it may be correct. It's the right therapy. It may even be on label. God knows how much we do that isn't on label, but it may be correct therapy, best therapy, optimal therapy, standard of care on label even, but it still may be a problem for that patient. And if the patient's telling you that the therapy's an issue, remember I told you about this article. And remember, you may need to change therapy even though you've improved a skin disease. Okay, let's talk a little bit about surgery. How about eye protection? You can see my beard's not quite as full as it was there. I, I get a haircut twice a year. Okay, by show of hands, be honest now, how many of you use eye protection every time it would be reasonable? So that's during surgery, even a punch biopsy, even an injection of local anesthetic or trying to inject something like a keloid. By show of hands, how many of you always and routinely use eye protection? Raise your hands. Yeah. <laughs> you fell right into this one. So, according to this study, 
Dermatologists routinely wear eye protection for procedures. What percent of time? 15, 24, 42, 67, or 81 percent? And survey says 50% said A. Well, it's not quite that bad. <laughs> but most of you didn't quite get this right. So the answer is it turns out about 40%. That's really sort of pitiful. And then when you get trainees and other office staff, it drops to 25%. And if they're asked, why don't you wear eye protection, they say, oh, well, there's a low risk that something's going to spray or splash back into my eye. And then the people who are either the owners or the principals of the practice say, well, it adds time, time, really, and expense. Hmm. So my message is this. Look, I went online. Okay, I'm guilty. I don't because I have my eyeglasses. Yeah, things get in here and get in here. But so I went online and found how much these things actually cost. And you can get a suitable one, you know, down to 35 cents. It's not really much to protect your vision. And remember, the conjunctiva are like a sieve. Anything gets in there, you might as well just put it in your bloodstream. And it doesn't look that bad. I mean, it, it, you know, the guy there looks a little scary. But the lady in the middle, you know, you can barely see that she has eye protection on. I hope she also put a mask on, which I find to be even more problematic, things getting back in your mouth. The bottom line is really think about it. I, I don't do it, so I'm guilty. So I'm with the majority of you guys. But just think about it. It really is important, especially if there's a, a high risk of splashback. I don't know about you, but injecting something like a keloid... What happens half the time? Shh, you've injected them and now it's on you. So think about eye protection. How about this one? Hydrochlorothiazide and the risk of non-melanoma skin cancer. Again, this is a study from a country that has everybody on a national health service, so it's easy to get data. And they compared a non-melanoma skin cancer cohort to age sex match controls. And they watched. These are people who are taking hydrochlorothiazide for hypertension for the most part. And they watched these folks in different categories, like they've been on it for a little bit, two and a half to five and a half years, or they've been on it forever, 11 to 22 years. And look at those bullet points with the big numbers in front of them. The odds ratio for basal cell goes up the longer you've been on a hydrochlorothiazide, but it's not that outstanding. But look at squamous cell. Oh my God, if you've been on it over 10 years, your risk of getting a squamous cell compared to everything else being identical. They tried to correct for everything, including lifelong UV exposure, seven times increased risk, but no increase with other antihypertensives. So we all look, there's an intake sheet on everybody, right? And then it's updated what medicines they're on. So what this message is telling us, this paper is telling us, the message to take home is that if someone's on hydrochlorothiazide, I know you do the same exam, you're very careful, just be a little more careful if they're on hydrochlorothiazide because their risk is greater. As soon as you say that, then there's this article. 
in the oncology, hematology oncology literature, and they found absolutely no association between thiazide diuretics or anything else that was for high blood pressure and cancer risk. So it's a little confusing. The data is not clear because we have two studies published in the same year with different results. Still, I think it's worth remembering that hydrochlorothiazide may increase the risk. Erythema abigni, you know, is the response to chronic heat exposure. And this was a nice article which pointed out by the sort of indirect measurements, uh, looking at billing codes and so forth. Erythema abigni has gone up a lot. Remember that most people got this in the old days by sitting around open fires and steam radiators. Do any of you remember steam radiators? They existed. But now we have very efficient methods of heat generation. Things like electric heating pads and blankets. Cell phones, they get hot, mine gets hot. Laptop computers, and some people like to use their laptop while it's sitting on their legs, for example. And there is a known risk, certainly, of squamous cell carcinoma, a little less clear, but it appears there's a risk of developing Merkel cell carcinoma and B-cell lymphoma. So if you see erythema abigni, one, you have to watch the patient carefully, you have to explain what this is from, and you have to try and discourage them from continuing doing whatever it is that gave them the erythema abigni in the first place. So here are two of my patients. There's one, she likes to lay on a heating pad, and right in the middle of her erythema abigni, she developed Bowen's disease, squamous cell carcinoma in situ. And a much younger patient who likes to rest her laptop on her leg with erythema abigni, who developed a squamous cell carcinoma right in the middle of her erythema abigni. So this is a real phenomenon, and you should be watching for it because your patients are using these very efficient ways of generating heat. Interesting study that came out of the VA long-term follow-up on chemotherapy and chemoprophylaxis for non-melanoma skin cancer, and it turns out that even a single run-through, two to four weeks, twice a day, most people didn't actually do that, unfortunately, but some did. If you do that with 5-FU, it reduces the risk of squamous cell carcinoma by 75%, as you're cleaning up a bunch of photo damage. There was a decrease in basal cell, but it wasn't really statistically significant. The problem is, as you follow these patients, this was a longitudinal study in the VA, so you have patients who are coming back and back and back. If you follow these patients, by the time you get to four years, that single run-through didn't help. They now started to develop non-melanoma skin cancers. So what's the message here? The message here is field therapy, which we do for actinic keratosis, and later in the meeting, you'll be hearing from Dr. Neil Bhatia, one of my very good friends, will talk, give you an AK update. But we do field therapy for that when there are enough lesions. You're going to give them, this was 5-FU. I would seriously doubt, I can't cite data like I can for this, but I would seriously doubt it would differ if you like to use imiquimod um, or inginal mebutate or PDT, any field therapy. You at least give them a short-term protection against squamous cell carcinoma. That's the good news. The bad news is you can't count on a single episode of field therapy to protect them forever. 
Remember, there's this PD-1, PD-L1 interaction where a tumor cell has the PDL, it has the ligand on it, and the receptor is located on the T cell, and that's a way for the tumor cell to suppress the T cell so it doesn't kill the tumor. And we have all these, that inactivates, right? We have all these blocking drugs now, a whole bunch of them, several of them are currently being used for malignant melanoma, advanced and metastatic. If you do a blocking drug that either blocks the ligand on the tumor cell or the receptor on the T cell, you block this inactivation and you allow the T cell to go after the tumor, whatever the tumor is. And we have a really unmet need with squamous cell carcinoma. We have the hedgehog inhibitors now, at least, for basal cell. But everything that's been used for really bad squamous cell just it either doesn't work or it works poorly, or if it works, it's very transient, very short duration, it's in effect. A new PD-1 blocker, that's why I started with that, specifically for advanced or metastatic squamous cell carcinoma, galcanizumab, erenumab, eptinezumab, moganmulizumab, or semiplumab. Which one? Okay, 32% of you got it right. That means 68% of you need to learn about this. The top three are for migraine, and the fourth one, the mo, gamma, blah, 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 that one, that's for cutaneous lymphoma. <laughs> so it's not the, fourth, the first four, it's the bottom one. So this is a brand new drug. It's an anti-PD-1 monoclonal antibody, so it's blocking that interaction we just talked about. And over 80% of cutaneous squamous cell carcinomas have this interaction going on because they're ligand positive. And they did a very early study which looked great. Objective response rate, almost 50%. Objective response being complete or partial remission. And they're now engaged in a phase two, which will be a pivotal study because it's meeting an unmet need. They don't, won't go to three, uh, phase three. They have inclusion and exclusion criteria. They'd be what you'd already figure out if I asked you to write it down, what you thought. And here's the actual data from their original study. Metastatic disease didn't respond completely, but at least partial response, 60% and 10% stable disease. When you're talking about bad cancer, you have to start thinking like an oncologist, right? We usually think like this, right? Basal cell, gone, because I just killed it. Or squamous cell, gone, because I just killed it. I excised it, I cured and desiccated it, I irradiated it, I, they're gone. We expect to cure. But these are bad, bad cancers, and so all the time, cure is not going to be the end game. The end game is going to be, even if you reduce it a little bit, you might make it then amenable to surgery, or it might be a stable. It's not getting worse, at least, and it's not amenable to surgery, or it's already been irradiated, and you can't re-irradiate it. Stable disease is sometimes a goal. At least it's not getting worse, it's not posing an immediate threat to their life, and it might improve their quality of life. 
So if you look at the bad locally advanced tumors, when you add up complete response, partial response, and stable disease, you know, you're in the 60 to 70% range. And that's great. All you have to do is see a picture like this. That's metastatic squamous cell carcinoma after treatment. Is it 100% gone? No. But isn't it a whole lot? Wouldn't you like to look a whole lot better instead of having lumps all over your head? So this is very promising. It's in its pivotal study now. And I think we will have this drug for squamous cell carcinoma that's locally advanced or metastatic. And I believe we talked about this last year, for those of you who were at the meeting. Avelumab is another of these blockers of that PD-1, PD-L1 interaction. And it's been approved for metastatic Merkel cell carcinoma. It's not something you see every day, but it used to be a death sentence. It was, you are gone. I'm so sorry. Go to the pyramids while you can. And so this is the follow-up past their six-month study, so now it's a year study. And look at the complete response rate and the objective response rate, the two first rows. They go up. So over the six months to 12 months, more people actually responded. Stable disease stayed the same. Partial response went down a little bit because some people actually got better and progressive disease stayed the same. So this is now a longitudinally good drug that given to patients who otherwise would have expired now can control their disease. And this one's approved. This is not off-label or experimental at all. So it's good. It's good to have longitudinal data. Okay, here's the one catch with these PD-1, PD-L1 inhibitors. Because they're un- Fettering. They're making the T cells work like they should to destroy the tumors. Sometimes the T cells then also do stuff they shouldn't do. So this can promote autoimmune disorders. And if you think of an organ and put itis after it, it's been described. Autoimmune hepatitis, autoimmune pneumonitis. Just put an itis after anything and it can happen. But from our standpoint, not only for the PD-1, PD-L1 blockers that we use in dermatology, like Avelumab and others that are used for melanoma, how about the other ones that exist that aren't indicated for derm disease? We have to also know, we have to know that these things can allow autoimmune attack on the skin. And so from a derm standpoint, they can cause a blistering disease that for all the world looks exactly like bullous pemphigoid. So if someone comes to you, they're referred to you by an oncologist, let's say, or a family doc, but it doesn't matter if the patient's being cared for in the oncology world. They come to you from the oncology world and they have a blistering disease. Remember, you treat it just like you would treat pemphigoid because from an immune standpoint, that's exactly what it is. How about this? If you have uh, sentinel node metastases of melanoma, if you cut all the nodes out, or just watch, does it matter? And I'll make this short. No, it doesn't. Doesn't matter how you detect the melanoma in the nodes either, whether it's by histology or it's by PCR, so you don't see anything grossly, but you find markers of melanoma there. 
if you observe or you cut all the nodes out, and you know, because you guys had good background medical training, you know that when you start cutting all the nodes out in a, in a basin, it often leads to a lot of morbidity. It doesn't kill people, but it's uncomfortable. It gets infected. Sometimes it never heals. It hurts forever and a day. It turns out that if you take out all the nodes in the sentinel basin of a sentinel node positive for melanoma, their survival is no better than if you just watched them. Calls into question using sentinel node biopsies. I'm not going to answer that. We're not going to solve that today but I just want you to have a high degree of skepticism. For acne and nutrition, this was an interesting article because they used an, a new way of analyzing the data. And they were looking for how good is the study? Did it show there was an association? Did it show there was a negative association? And so this is one example. They did this for all the things that have been thought about as acne promoting. So this, these were milk studies. Five of them were neutral. They weren't terribly well done. Two and 15 were not good, a little better done studies that showed that milk was responsible for acne in some patients. I guess, and then they said at the end of this article that no therapeutic recommendations could be done based on any of the existing nutritional studies relating to acne. So I guess that's the message. Still... You know, push comes to shove in the real world. I try and limit milk, and I try and get them on low-glycemic diets, and that seems to be more important for the boys than the girls. But really, from a scientific standpoint, the data still is not conclusive. But this one's really even more interesting. This was looking at serum homocysteine. I don't know what prompted them originally to do this, but they did. 124 acne patients compared to age-sex match control. And it turns out serum homocysteine levels in moderate to severe acne were higher than controls, and the severity of the acne correlated with serum homocysteine levels. So we don't know if increased serum homocysteine is a reflection of the fact that they have or will have even worse acne, or whether it somehow contributes to the acne. That hasn't been sorted out. But it looks like this might be an interesting marker for us to study. Now, this was a smallish study. It was done in China on Chinese subjects only. So it needs a larger study and some validation. But wouldn't it be cool that if a patient came to you the first visit for acne and you could measure something in the blood that would tell you this patient's at increased risk of getting severe acne. I need to be a little more aggressive. You know, when you're standing there trying to think, well, can I get away with just topicals? Do I really need to give this patient pills? Because we're all good stewards of antibiotics now. Maybe this is how we'll decide in the future. So I just wanted to introduce the, you can get this now. Don't know the significance yet. Hasn't been validated in a population like the US multicultural, but it may be coming. Psoriasis. Just to talk about the liver and psoriasis, you know, we worry about that, where they can have hepatic disease. And the bottom line in this study was that psoriasis alone increases the risk of hepatic disease. We know that. And that's true if you, even if you exclude other factors that could affect the liver, 
like obesity, so there's fatty infiltration, or alcohol use because they're depressed over their psoriasis, and so forth and so on. But when you add methotrexate, it really increases the risk. And it really increases the risk if they have psoriatic arthritis along with their psoriasis. So you need to be careful using anything that's hepatotoxic in a patient who's obese and who also has psoriatic arthritis in addition to their skin disease. I've used this now a couple of times to get a biologic drug when the insurance carrier wanted me to give methotrexate first. And I've used this article as a reason why I shouldn't give them. It's bad medical practice to give them methotrexate because I'll end up killing their liver and killing them. And it actually has worked. So if you're in that situation, you might think about using this in that way. And then this is a study out of Kuwait. 4,700-odd patients over a six-year period, psoriasis patients, they either got TNF, they got methotrexate, or they got topical only. And the idea was looking at them over this length of time, did it reduce their risk of cardiovascular disease? And it turns out, yes, TNF inhibition compared to topicals alone, statistically significant. TNF alphas compared to methotrexate, the trend but wasn't quite statistically significant was for TNF-alphas to do better than methotrexate at reducing cardiovascular risk. There's already an existing article in the JAD that says TNF is better than methotrexate on these grounds, and they had nine times the number of patients in this study. So it takes a large cohort to see that difference. Bottom line, someone comes in with psoriasis, you could go either way. You could do an intensive topical regimen combined with phototherapy, let's say. You might think about methotrexate. You might think about a biologic drug, particularly a TNF-alpha inhibitor. We don't have this data like this for the IL-17, 12, 23, and 23 blockers yet. That's being looked at. And they're hypertensive and they're, you know, they have other risk factors, maybe a strong family history of cardiovascular disease. We have studies, not only in the U.S. now, but in Kuwait, that show your TNF-alpha blockers not only are treating the psoriasis, but reducing their risk for cardiovascular events. There's so much stuff on atopic dermatitis, and you're going to hear a lot about it during this meeting. I just wanted to point out this one thing. If you have staph, if you're an atopic diathesis patient and you have staph, the more staph, the more severe your disease. Higher IgE, more likely to be allergic to something or become sensitized to something. Higher transepidermal water loss, higher LDH. So staph carriers, skin and nasal, who are atopics, are worse off. At some point, again, it's like the homocysteine, Maybe this will help you decide how aggressive do I need to be with this patient. This is a great study out of France. My way of thinking, good wine comes from France, but not much else. But this is actually a good study out of France. They're just so damn arrogant. But this is a good study. And what they did is they took patients, they were men who have sex with men, they were involved in another study with pre-exposure prophylaxis to try and prevent HIV. And what they did is they divided them up into two groups, or a little over 100 in each group. 
and they receive doxycycline immediately after, within 24 hours after, without any barrier protection, sexual exposure. And they followed them for 10 months, wasn't quite a year, and they looked at who got bacterial infections over that course, the 116 or so who got toxic or the 116 who didn't, within 24 hours of unprotected intercourse. And it was twice as many people got a uh, bacterial infection. This included GC, syphilis, and chlamydia compared to those who didn't. So if you have a patient, particularly an HIV-positive patient, who still is engaging in risky sexual behavior, giving them a single dose, one dose, of 200 milligrams doxy, you know, give them enough so they have a little supply when they need it. Because by the time they call the office and you get the request and calls back in you, 24 hours is probably over. So they need to have it in their possession. A single dose of 200 milligrams of doxycycline within 24 hours of unprotected intercourse protects you against acquiring bacterial diseases. That's really cool. And this is a wart study. I like thinking about preventing the same problem or preventing a new problem. And they were looking at different modalities for warts. These were all plantar warts, not common warts out on the hands, but I'm sure it's the same. And they were looking for which thing did the best. And it turns out pulse dye laser was better than sal acid or cryo or even CO2 laser. Eh, okay. But this was the neat thing. They also looked at what induced recurrences, and smokers had a five times greater recurrence rate. Here's a message. It's clinically useful. Not in little kids, because most of them aren't smoking. But if you have an adult patient that you're having trouble clearing common or plantar warts, ask if they smoke. The thing they may need to do is stop smoking so your intervention will work. How about this, molluscum? There was a nice Cochrane analysis that said nothing works more than anything else. So, you know, take every article anyone tells you about with molluscum with a big grain of salt. But they used topical KOH, 10 or 15%, a little dab every day versus placebo. And you can see complete clearing rates for the 10 and 15% KOH. We're in the 60% rate. Placebo is about 18%. We all know molluscum are going to go away spontaneously. Most of the time, it's just a question of when and what will be the tolerance of mom and dad or the tolerance of the adult who gets molluscum in the anogenital area due to close personal contact. God, these bumps are there. No one's going to want to do it with me anymore. So KOH works. I've done this for a very long time. I give them a little tiny vial. You don't want to give them a bottle because God only knows what they're going to do with it. You know, some night, oh, that looks like a nice, interesting thing to drink. Chug, chug, chug. KOH, esophagus gone, they die. So a little teeny tiny vial like this, I tell them to apply it with a toothpick once a day, and I use 10% KOH, and these guys recommended the 10. 15 did a little better, it wasn't statistically significant, but it was associated with more stinging and burning. How about the new shingles vaccine? Administration of the new shingles vaccine can lead to fever, fatigue, nausea, myalgia, or all of the above.
hallelujah, you're all right, yay. Um, that one percent that's down on A, I hear they need plumbers in San Diego. I don't know, no, you're, you got it. So this is the new vaccine, the Shingrix. It is not a live vaccine. It's an attenuate, it's a proteinaceous derivative. It's two doses. It's given IM. I don't have it in here because it literally just came out. Mort morbidity and mortality weekly reports said that a lot of the local reactions are because people don't understand. This is given IM. The old shingles vaccine was given sub-Q. So if you're pinching the skin and using that as a place to inject the new shingles vaccine, it's too superficial, and you're going to get a local reaction. It's much better than the old vaccine, and the American Committee for Immunization Practices has stated that even if your patient got the original shingles vaccine, they should get this because their immunity to the original vaccine is going to wane. This one, we have at least nine years study, at least nine years where the antibody levels are still high enough to be protective. So that's very good. There is a small problem with it in that a fair number will get some adverse events. So local reactions, pain, redness, and swelling can happen, a substantial number of patients. The orange and the yellow bars are 50 years old and over 70 years old, but it only lasts for a couple days. And even if they get all those systemic side effects, or some of them, fatigue, fever, chills, headache, myalgia, they're only going to last for one or two days. I had the original vaccine. I had Zostavex, and I've gotten my Shingrix now. There is a nationwide shortage of the vaccine. But it's given even in the drugstores like Walgreens and CVS. So please have your patients get this vaccine. This is a brand new drug. It was approved in 12 of 17, ozonoxacin. It's a non-fluorinated quinolone approved for the treatment of impetigo. It has the infrequent short dosing schedule, twice a day for five days. The pivotal study just came out online in JAMA Dermatology. I'm the primary author, the first author. It has a very wide spectrum, and it's not only superior to placebo, but no worse. It's non-inferior to ritapamulin, which almost no one has ever even heard of. It's the other drug besides mupirocin that's approved for the topical treatment of impetigo. This looks like a really nice drug. How about abscesses? We all know if there's a gigantic abscess, you're going to cut it open, get the pus out, and give them antibiotics. But what about little tiny abscesses? Can you just cut it open, get the pus out, and you're done with it? or do we need to give antibiotics? And this article in New England of Journal of Medicine, I think, has answered that. And the bottom line is, they took adults and children both, five centimeters or less in adults, three to four centimeters in kids. Everybody got incision and drainage. And then some people got a placebo, some people got clindamycin, some people got trimethoprim, sulfamethoxazole, Bactrim, septra, and for 10 days. And then they looked and saw in seven days how they were doing. And it turns out that statistically significant, more people were clinically cured if they got the antibiotics than if they just got IND. This has had me rethink my own way of treating these. Because it isn't like IND didn't work. Almost 70% were clinically cured, but I prefer 80% to 70%. So... 
I think that we need to think about we should give antibiotics even to, for small abscesses. And that difference in cure rate was even more striking in children than it was in adults. And yeah, there's occasional side effects. You know, those who got clinda got some diarrhea. What do you expect? But other than that, the cure rate's just better, plain out better. We have a treatment now for Chagas disease, which everybody diagnoses in your office every day. Um, just to point out, the Romagna sign is the thing that you see with this on the skin. There is a drug, there's a dosing regimen for it. It comes in small pills and big pills because a lot of children get this more than adults. It's endemic throughout South America, most of South America, Central America, Mexico, and a few places in the Caribbean. And there have been some native cases in the U.S. The big problem with this disease is that they get mega things, mega esophagus, megacolon, and cardiomegaly. Those are enlarged. They don't work so well, and they have complications from that. Just so you know, there's actually a treatment for this. It's really toxic. You don't even want to think about giving it. But if you ever make this diagnosis, we have something to do for it. Rituxan, rituximab. This was a study, again, actually a decent French study, where they looked at low-dose prednisone plus rituxan. Prednisone goes away, rituxan continues as therapy, versus high-dose prednisone for pemphigus. Look at this. I mean, this is one of the things speaks for itself. That's the group who got low-dose prednisone along with rituxan. They got two doses initially, and then they got a dose and a dose months later, to a year later. Complete response, pemphigus gone, on average, medium time, 277 days, 89% had complete response by two years. 89%, no pemphigus. And you know, that kills. That's a bad disease. How about the people who just got high-dose steroids? That's our traditional therapy for pemphigus vulgaris. It took them 677 days if they got a complete response, and only 34% of them got complete response. Far and away the best thing to do. And as of June 8th, rituxan is now approved for pemphigus vulgaris. It is on label. That's great. If you're looking at things like antiretroviral therapy and HIV, and you think the patient looks better, they're feeling better, they have undetectable HIV in their blood, their CD4 counts much higher than it used to be, it's all over. No, it isn't. You can still find HIV in the semen in one-third of those patients who ostensibly are doing very well with their HIV disease. This is a cause for concern. How about a drug rash? Someone comes to you or they're sent to you for a drug rash. What is your first knee-jerk reaction? Stop the drug, right? So these people, this group, it's from Germany. They asked, well, could you just keep giving the drug? What happened? It's Germany. They don't have malpractice insurance. So that's why they did the study. I wouldn't do that study. But they did it, and I'm glad that they did it. And they said, what about treating through? And it turns out it was a small, there were only 18 patients, and six of them had to stop the drug for other reasons. But on the other 12 patients, they just kept administering the antibiotic. 
This is all antibiotics. And it turns out the drug rash kind of resolved itself and they got the drug they needed. So the message here is if the patient's under good and close observation and they really need that antibiotic and they have this kind of maculopapular morbilliform eruption, that's it. You can probably just go ahead and treat through. Now, I'm talking about this. I'm not talking about someone who gets a severe drug reaction and you keep giving them the drug. Not that. But if they have that rash like I, I showed you, very nonspecific, you know, drug, viral, viral drug, that differential kind of rash, and they really need the antibiotic for whatever you gave it to them or whatever they, whoever gave it to them outside and they sent, they're sent to you, if they really need the antibiotic, it's probably okay to continue to treat them. One thing you can do for drug rashes is hemodialysis. This is really in its infancy. It's an interesting article. They didn't have a lot of patients, but it's something we might start thinking about for drug rashes. Biotin, if you give biotin. How many of you give biotin to your patients who complain of, oh, let's say their hair is splitting or it fractures easily? How many of you give biotin? I do. Yeah, a fair number of you do. Well, just keep this in mind. Biotin totally screws up a lot of drug tests. It most pronounced screws up thyroid testing. So if you're giving biotin, and who complains about their hair splitting and you know, being fragile? More women than men. Who get more thyroid disease? More women than men. It makes them look like they have thyrotoxicosis. It interferes with the test. So they have lower TSH, and they have high levels of total and free T3 and T4, it looks like they're thyrotoxic and might totally screw up anyone's evaluation of their thyroid. So keep that in mind. Now, this was done with pretty stiff doses of biotin, 10 milligrams a day, which I rarely give that much, but some people do. It isn't that the high dose of biotin is going to hurt them, but it's more likely to interfere with their thyroid testing. So if for some reason you're seeing, you might even get a thyroid test because they complain of hair loss, right? That's one of the things to check. And in the meantime, here, take this biotin and they wait seven days to go get their thyroid test. You might get a false positive test for hyperthyroidism. So biotin should not be in someone who's getting thyroid testing. Which statement is true of pubic grooming? Men groom more than women. There's an increased incidence of STDs. There's an increased risk of migraines. <laughs> increased risk of TEN or none of the above. Okay, 48% of you gave the right answer. 40% of you said none of the above. So you're going to learn something that's important. So this was a study looking at pubic grooming. I don't care how you do it, electrically, with a shaver. By show of hands, how many? No, we won't do that. <laughs> Stop. I won't do it. Won't ask it. So, but this was a nationwide survey, 18 to 65 representative sample, 74% groomed their pubic hair. More women than men, but 66% of men do it as well. And if you look at people who are sort of intense groomers, 
Monthly, they remove as much as they can of their pubic hair. They're 4.4 times more likely to get an STD. So just keep that in mind when you're seeing patients who are complaining of something down there and you look and you see they don't have any pubic hair, they are more likely to have an STD. But the interesting thing is the ones who don't groom, they have an increased risk of pubic lice for obvious reasons, because the lice have a home and they have something to hold on to. If there's no hair there, they look around and they say, damn, I can't live here. I'm going somewhere else. <laughs> Off they go. Do you know the British Association of Dermatologists actually gave Sarah Jessica Parker an award for promoting pubic grooming on Sex in the City, which has made pubic lice almost non-existent in industrialized countries. She got an award, like a big trophy. <laughs> here's where people groom, just in case you wanted to know. And here's why. I think the interesting one here is both men and women. Trip to the doctor, trip to the, you know, I've had yet a single patient to tell me, you know, I grew my pubic hair just for you. <laughs> Doesn't happen. Okay, but here's the other companion article, the same people looking at the same cohort, basically. There are injuries when you groom your pubic hair. I think that may be related. It's not that pubic hair groomers are more promiscuous or they don't care what they do or they engage in sexier, uh, riskier sex habits. It's the fact that you get injuries. Most of them aren't significant enough to seek medical care, you know, about one and a half percent, but those little injuries are portals of entry. And I think that's where you get your increased risk because of insignificant but open areas. So injuries and STDs. Okay, we'll close with devices. Has anyone seen this yet? The blue control, it was supposed to be available now-ish, summer of 2018. So you should see it pretty soon. It's a high intensity blue light that you literally, I'll show you in a second, you literally strap on to areas that are hard to treat with psoriasis. Elbows and knees, for example, very high intensity blue light. They actually looked at it versus a sham. It looked and felt the same, but it wasn't emitting anything. And it turns out it really did a pretty darn good job of treating local areas that are problematic. It's called the blue control. And this should be out now-ish. You'll hear about it, I'm sure. And how many of you have patients, no matter what you're doing, a topical phototherapy, biologic drug, they do great, and their elbows and knees are still crappy. This is a kind of cool thing. Put the light, and they take it home. They buy it, they take it home. You don't have to sell it to them. You don't have to have them return it and stuff like that. And then the extracorporeal shock waves. This is a new device that was just approved for the treatment of diabetic ulcers. And for whatever reason, these shock waves, acoustic shock waves, act or pulsed. They compared this to a sham and it actually promotes healing. Now, complete healing was only a third, but over 90% of patients, over 90% healing in half the patients. That's pretty good. You know, diabetic ulcers are sometimes difficult to treat. So if half of them get rid of 90%, well, that's fine and dandy. And here's an example of what you can expect. And this is approved. It'll be paid for by Medicare and most third-party payers. So we have acoustic waves for diabetic ulcers 
and we have localized high-intensity blue light that you strap right on for psoriasis. Cool new devices. So I want to thank you very much for your kind attention. I hope I haven't put you to sleep. And I will see you later in the conference. Thank you very much. This has been a presentation of Dermcast.tv, the official online media resource for the Society of Dermatology PAs.